It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of the brutal murder of a 14-year-old child, as well as racism. Sometimes, groups of dedicated civilians are able to accomplish things that seem beyond the abilities of the authorities. In doing the murder sheet, we have found example after example of this. And here is another. A group of five people, including Deborah Watts, is determined to do all they can to find justice for Watts' cousin, Emmett Till. Emmett was murdered all the way back in 1955. And even though we have a pretty good idea who was responsible for that crime, no one has ever been convicted on charges connected to it. Watts and her allies recently visited a courthouse in Greenwood, Mississippi. In the basement, going through old records, they found something thought lost. It was an arrest warrant in the case, 
from all the way back in 1955. It called for a suspect to be brought in and charged. And that person is still alive, can still be brought to justice. So the question on everyone's mind is obvious. What happens now? My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, the Murder Sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout Season 1 to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We're the Murder Sheet, and this is Justice Denied, the murder of Emmett Till. understand what might happen next in the case, or what should happen, it is important to understand what's already occurred. We need to know who Emmett Till is and what exactly happened to him. Many of us know the broad outlines of the story as it has been presented over the years. An African-American 14-year-old was visiting the South and whistled at a white woman. In response, her husband and his half-brother tortured and killed him. His horrific death and the lack of justice he received became a catalyst for outcries about racism and segregation throughout the United States. But we thought it was important to go deeper. To help us do that, we decided to turn to an expert, Devery Anderson. Devery is the author of Emmett Till, the murder that shocked the world and propelled the civil rights movement. This is the definitive book on the case. If you are interested in all of the details of this story and how it has impacted the history of this country, we highly recommend you read Devery's book. We started by asking Devery to tell us about Emmett Till in 1955, the year he was killed. He was 14 years old, African-American, living in Chicago. He had family in Mississippi and a great uncle who was visiting Chicago. Uh, was going to take back Emmett's good friend and cousin by marriage, Wheeler Parker, and take him, Moses Wright was going to take him back to Mississippi on the train. Emmett heard that this was going to happen and he wanted to go too. So after some discussion, he was able to go. And on uh, August 20th, a Saturday, Moses Wright, Wheeler Parker, and Emmett Till headed south on the train. That night made it to Mississippi. This was a Saturday. Four days later, after picking cotton with the family for a few days and just swimming, playing outdoors, doing all that kind of stuff in this hot weather, um, they decided to take a break and drove three miles west into 
downtown money, which was just one street uh, with a few shops. One of those shops was the Bryant Grocery and Meat Market. They were on their way to a juke joint, uh, but when they got there, it hadn't opened yet for the evening. This was about 8 o'clock at night on a Wednesday, August 24th. And the juke joint hadn't opened yet, and so rather than go home or, or just wait for it to open, they noticed a checkers game going on in front of the Bryant store and so they walked over there just to watch the game and this was Emmett with six uh, companions who had crammed into Mose Wright's 1946 Ford and drove into town. After a little bit, now this is one thing we do know from comes from Wheeler Parker who talked to four different reporters, all sympathetic papers, two of them were the black press, two others were northern, were Chicago papers. In all four accounts, uh, told separately, so we know he wasn't misquoted, Wheeler Parker said that there was an older boy there, and it was someone who was already there in front of the store. There had been some banter uh, about girls and that type of thing. There was an older boy who said, there's a pretty woman working inside of the store. You ought to go in and take a look at her. He didn't challenge him to ask her for a date or to act up or anything like that. He just... In all Wheeler's accounts, he just said that basically there was a, someone told him there was a pretty girl inside, so Emmett wanted to see what she looked like. It's hard to know if Emmett was, I mean, Emmett was in there alone with Carolyn Bryant briefly, but again, to talk to his cousins, you get different stories. Simeon Wright on some occasions said that Wheeler Parker went in the store first, and when he came out, Emmett and Simeon went in together, and so Emmett was never alone. But on other times, he said that they were he was alone maybe for a minute or so. And once, he, or once or twice, he even said, what happened before I went in the store? I don't know. So he, he indicates on some days that Emmett was in there by himself. Well, Wheeler Parker, in a, in a 1955 interview, said that when I heard there was trouble, um, I sent another boy in to get Emmett out. And he didn't identify what the trouble was, but something clearly happened in the store because when he left the store, Carolyn Bryant followed him out, and that's when he waved and said goodbye and then whistled at her. She got upset and went towards a car to get a gun, and Emmett's companions were with him. His cousin Maurice said, you know, boy, you know better than that, and he said Emmett just laughed, but they were all scared, and so they got in the car and drove off. Just for the record... There's a specific reason we picked this up on our spreadsheet listing restaurant murders, even though technically the Bryant store sold groceries. You see, this was a place where shoppers sometimes bought food to snack on out front. But frankly, the setting isn't that important. What everyone wants to know, of course, is what exactly happened between Emmett Till and Carolyn Bryant in that store. You know, what happened inside the store between Emma Till and Carolyn Bryant, because she's the only one alive who can talk about that. We don't know those details unless you want to believe her, but she's told contradicting stories. And it's clear that she made up the stuff she told on the witness stand. But um, what happened outside was said and was done in front of witnesses. There were several people in front of the store. Emmett's, the six people who were with Emmett were there and Three of those kids, Maurice Wright, Simeon Wright, and Wheeler Parker, all talked to the press on numerous occasions. They all said that they saw Emmett whistle at Carolyn Bryant outside of the store, and Wheeler Parker, who's still living, maintains that to this day. Carolyn Bryant didn't talk about the whistle until she went on the stand and uh, testified at the 
murder trial a few weeks later. So all pre-trial publicity that talked about the whistle, that this was a wolf whistle case, the wolf whistle trial, the wolf whistle murder, all that was based on what Emmett's cousins told the press and police. So she, she wasn't really accusing him of whistling at her. She accused him of ugly remarks. And when the men came to kidnap Emmett, they said, we want that boy that did the talking in money. It was all about talk. There wasn't a word about a whistle. The men, I don't think, were so much concerned about the whistle, but they were concerned about talk. But they weren't concerned about an attempted rape. They never brought that up, and that didn't seem to be even be on their minds. That's one reason we know that there can, you know, that's part of the evidence uh, in this chain of evidence that indicates Carolyn Bryant made that up on the on the witness stand. Many people think that she made up the wolf whistle, and I've heard many people, even. Attorney Benjamin Crump the other day said that um, she referred to her as falsely accusing Emmett of whistling at her. And that just isn't the case. The whistle happened, and but it gets bunched up with the other stuff she lied about. And, so, and the whistle, I mean, he didn't deserve to die because of the whistle, but at the same time, people need to just have the story straight. I just think when it comes to history, there's no, never an excuse for misinformation in history. Facts matter, and it's important to have to tell it right. So, Devery is saying that there are witnesses outside the store who agree that Emmett did in fact whistle at Carolyn Bryant. But that whistle does not seem to have been what actually motivated Emmett's murder. Again, that leads us right back through the door and into the store once again. The problem is that the only living witness to those events, Carolyn Bryant herself, has told radically different versions of the story. But she did say what happened in the store, and her version on September 2nd was that Emmett came in to buy some gum, and when he went to pay for the gum, he touched her hand and said, how about a date, baby? Uh, Which upset her, and he said, you don't need to be afraid of me, or, or something like that. But it was a very mild account compared to what she told on the witness stand, and she said someone came in the store at that point, another boy, that and Emmett left with him and that she said nothing else happened until they went outside so in this account she says that Emmett asked for a date so maybe that was the smart talk maybe that's what upset her and why she followed him out if he did he wouldn't have known she was a married woman she was very petite as well as far as he knew she could have just been a teenage girl working in the store no one told her she was married but uh, the only thing that would have been stood out to the to him was that she was white and him being in Mississippi would have known that he shouldn't do that, but he was kind of that personality that he he liked to show off and he liked to you know show off for the benefit of his friends. So him asking that if that's what happened in the store would not have he wouldn't have meant anything by it, but she would have taken it very seriously because her being a southern white woman, that kind of an interaction with a black male would have been unheard of. And scary, I suppose, but to him it would have just been funny and nothing malicious. Uh, so those two cultures clashed for a moment there. Now that's if that did happen. We don't know, but what we do know is that nothing worse than that happened because that was her original version. She embellished it on the witness stand to turn it into an attempted rape. So nothing worse than that happened, but I'm sure something did happen for her to follow him out of the store and the whistle seemed to be the last straw and not the first interaction that would have upset her, just based on what we know. 
Jerry Mitchell, the great investigative reporter we have interviewed on an earlier episode, is covering recent developments in this case. He offered us some more insights into the story Carolyn Bryant told at trial about Emmett's visit to her store. Her statement at trial was basically Emmett Till Aldo raped her. Uh, knew she was assault, sexually assaulted, essentially, and you know, not raped, but sexually assaulted. Uh, I think the way the defense lawyer categorized it, and he told, he said this out loud before the trial ever began, and therefore you know, well, it was in the papers and other things. So before the jury was ever seated, this was told publicly and publicized. The defense lawyer said that she was mauled by Emmett Till. So that was what he said, and she basically mirrored that test. Just a few nights later, the men came for Emmett Till. When they were in bed at night around 2 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday night slash Sunday morning, uh, some men came to Moserite's home, pounded on the door. One of the men identified himself as Mr. Bryant. He said, this is Roy Bryant. I want to talk to you and that boy, that boy from Chicago. So Mose Wright opened the door, and these men just were standing there with a, one of them had a flashlight in one hand and a pistol in the other, and they demanded this boy, and um, the house was pitch dark. The light bulbs were all burned out. Either there were none in any of the sockets. There was one in the socket that was burned out, so they had no light for the evening. And so with a flashlight in hand, they searched the house, found Emmett Till, J.W. Milam asked, are you the boy who did the talking in money? And Emmett said, yeah. He woke him up from his sleep, and he just half asleep said, yeah. Milam said, don't say yeah to me. Um, you know, not don't say yeah, and don't say, you know, it's yes, sir, basically, is what he was trying to say. He said, don't say yeah to me, or I'll blow your head off. So he just basically, at that point, made him get dressed and took him out to the car or out to a vehicle that Moses Wright couldn't identify because it was so dark. He just said there was a vehicle out there. And when they were out there, he heard them ask someone in the truck who had a voice that he said was lighter than a man. They asked, is this the right boy? And he heard this voice that sounded like a woman's voice say yes. So with that, they threw him in the back of the truck and or back of the vehicle and took off. Uh, Mose Wright said he saw another man on the porch that didn't come in the house, and he said he thought that was uh, appeared to be a black man that was hiding his face because he didn't want him to see who he was. Three days later, his body surfaces in the Tallahatchie River, and when they retrieved the body, it was clear that he'd been tortured, beaten, shot through the head, and having been in the water for a few days, uh, he was decomposing, so that added to the horror of, of his body. Emmett Till suffered horribly on the final night of his life. This 14-year-old was beaten, tortured, and finally shot in the head. We will not dwell on the exact details of what he went through, but we did think it was important to point out that one thing that reportedly happened to him that night was actually a sick fiction. But this man said that Mose Wright told him that Emmett had been castrated. Well, when they exhumed his body in 2005, um, he was still intact. In fact, he was in better shape in 2005 than he was in 1955 because all that bloating from the river had gone down and he was more recognizable. But his body was dry and his clothes were dry and he was 
in good shape, and they did another autopsy on him, and his genitalia was clearly intact. What actually happened to Emmett was horrible enough. He was so badly beaten that his wounds made him almost unrecognizable to some people. But his mother, Mamie Till, recognized her son, and she made a decision that would have lasting reverberations. And she insisted on an open casket funeral after the body was shipped back to Chicago because when she saw his body and what they had done to him, she knew she couldn't explain it for others to adequately understand what happened. So she insisted on an open casket funeral and thousands, tens of thousands of people filed by the casket over a five-day period in early September. And that uh, act on her part was a brave act It would have been hard for any mother to have her child on display like that, looking like that. But she saw a greater good that would come from it, that it would perhaps wake up the world and show the world what uh, Southern racism was like at its ugliest. And that's what she was able to do. And that's why the the case uh, received such attention and international attention at the time of the trial uh, because of that act of hers. So the whole world was talking about it. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Row Body Program. Here's how it works. Row gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Row Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. EMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's roe.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
Carolyn Bryant's husband, Roy, and his half-brother, J.W. Milam, were in custody within days of the vicious murder. Roy Bryant has been arrested for kidnapping, which happened the day, the morning after the kidnapping. He was charged with kidnapping because they hadn't found the body. He admitted to taking Emmett Till from the home, uh, but he said he let him go. They felt safe that the body would never surface, so having the story that they let Emmett Till go, they thought people would believe. He was arrested on Sunday. Uh, J.W. Milam turned himself in on Monday the 29th. The murder trial of J.W. Milam and Roy Bryant began just a few weeks after this on September 19th. And after two days of jury selection, there was just three days of testimony, really two and a half days. And what some of the witnesses were those witnesses, Willie Reed, Amanda Bradley, and uh, Ad Reed, uh, Willie Reed's grandfather, who were the ones who, between the three of them, saw Emmett Till on the back of a truck, heard him being beaten in a shed, and then saw a truck pull out with a tarp over it and drive away. Thanks to Mamie Till's brave decision to allow the open casket at Emmett's funeral, it seemed much of the country was paying attention to the trial of Roy Bryant and J.W. Milam. The world was listening, the world was watching, and despite all of the witness testimony that was very convincing, you had the sheriff of LaFleur County where the kidnapping took place, and the deputy sheriff both saying that, yes, Milam and Bryant told us they kidnapped Emmett Till, we got a kidnapping confession out of them, but they said they let him go. Uh, Emmett Till's uh, father's ring that he was wearing with the initials of Emmett's father, LT, for Lewis Till, that ring was found on his finger. And, of course, uh, that, that helped Moses Wright identify him, and then, of course, the mother identified him. So we have, when you piece the events together, two men admit to kidnapping him. They say they let him go, but Emmett's never heard from again, and he's... His body is found in the Tallahatchie River. He's clearly been murdered because of the gunshot wound and the uh, ring on his finger. But the the defense uh, raised enough questions about the identity of the body. They weren't very solid. Uh, the, the, the sheriff and a doctor who testified that they didn't think that could be Emmett Till's body because a body would decompose that fast in only three days took at least seven to ten days to get that bad, they said. Emmett hadn't been missing that long, and so uh, to listen to them, the body couldn't have been Emmett's for how long they said it had been in the river. The prosecution countered some of that by saying, by pointing out that a body that is beaten and bloodied will decompose faster, and uh, and in the temperatures, in summer temperatures, it's in, the, in the water is going to decompose faster, too. But the jury, looking for an excuse to acquit, bought the defense's argument that the body couldn't be proved to be Emmett Till's, uh, despite the other evidence during trial. And so the jury acquitted on day five of the trial after 67 minutes of deliberation. Um, and so the men got to go free. They still had to face kidnapping charges. And despite having, and that was in a different county than Tallahassee County, despite having confessed to kidnapping, to the sheriff and deputy sheriff who both testified before the grand jury in November, the kidnapping grand jury and testimony of Mose Wright and Willie Reed, who also testified before the grand jury. The grand jury didn't even indict them 
for the kidnapping. So they, they didn't even have to face trial. So that was it. They were free and never had to face any other possible punishments or arrests or anything regarding the Emmett Till case. Usually, we hope that a criminal trial brings out the truth about a case. That clearly did not happen here. Many people believe that the actual facts of the murder of Emmett Till were actually brought out a little later via the media. The murder trial ended on September 23rd, and they knew they were going to face up a grand jury for kidnapping, but that wouldn't be till November. So in between then, in October, William Bradford Huey came to Sumner, Mississippi, uh, where the trial was held and where the attorneys for the defendants still practiced law on the town square. He went to one of them and said, basically, I want to pay these guys money to tell me what really happened. And the, the, he wanted to arrange it through the attorney and the uh, he had a theory what had happened and that they actually killed him. And one of the attorneys said, yeah, I, that's my guess too. I'll talk to them and see if they'll talk to you. And it took a little bit because uh, he didn't know at that point who he was going to sell the story to. He wasn't working directly for Look Magazine, but Huey had a few different options. And in the end, he went to Look. And Look wanted signed releases from everybody. And William Bradford Huey knew that there were other white men involved. If you read his correspondence during this time, he's telling magazine editors and others that, you know, there were other white men involved. I have their names. I just want to, I want to try to get them to sign releases because the, the magazine wants that. They want to protect themselves by having these releases from these others. Uh, he didn't get them. And so when he couldn't get them, he changed his tune and said, Actually, only Milam and Bryant were involved. I was wrong. They acted alone. So that was the story they decided to tell, and that's the one they told. And so because this happened between uh, the murder and kidnapping trial, the concern was if these men are indicted for kidnapping, then uh, we won't do the story till after the trial's over. If they're not indicted, then we'll run with it. And so that's what happened after the uh, everything was already done. They'd done the interviews. They got the releases signed. And the, there are only two releases that exist, one signed by J.W. Milam and one signed by Carolyn Bryant. Roy Bryant either didn't sign one or his is lost. But when you read the article, he doesn't say a word, really. Um, he's not quoted at all, really, in the uh, article. And so... J.W. Milam did all the talking, and so perhaps Roy decided last minute he didn't want one, didn't want to sign one, and maybe they felt they needed something from their side, and so they talked Carolyn into signing one. I don't know, but those are the two releases that exist. And so everything was set in place, and so once the, the uh, grand jury decided not to indict them, then they were free to go ahead and go with the story, and so they started making arrangements to have it published in the January issue uh and it, I, I think the magazine came out weekly or maybe twice a month that article appeared in january uh, 1956 in look and just it just created just this buzz all over and what it did the southerners and or people in mississippi especially locally who had contributed to their defense fund who knew they were guilty but felt that if they're convicted 
it's going to be the end of segregation and they saw a domino effect and so they knew they were guilty but they thought more damage would come to the south if they were convicted uh that's the stand they had taken privately uh, and once that they learned from their own mouths that they were guilty everybody just just them uh, nobody wanted a thing to do with them i guess they, they were fine with having murderers living among them as long as they never talked about it and once they talked about it and bragged about it in this magazine that was too much for most people and so people in the south and mississippi just clammed up basically anybody who had supported them and that was really the last thing that was written on the on the case for a long time there were poems and there were songs and there were some short stories and things like that but scholars and historians and members of the press didn't really write much for years and years after the Huey piece appeared people in the south paid them for that reason that they had uh, supported them and didn't want to talk about that or think about that anymore the black community it was a very painful thing for them and because they wanted action after that uh, they focused on stuff that could bring them their goals or anybody with the civil rights movement white or black Montgomery bus boycott started around that time and so their attention turned to stuff they could change ways they could make change and not just talking about this tragic case anymore that they couldn't do anything about and so that's one reason why um, people just forgot about it or stopped talking about it and that's why the rumors and the or the the lies of the Huey case stuck for so many years because it was kind of the last word on the subject for a long long time until people decided to reevaluate it again and look deeper and refute that story let's be as clear as we can roy bryant and jw milam the men who cooperated with william bradford huey on the story for look magazine had strong reasons not to share all the facts about what had happened because these two men had been uh, acquitted, they couldn't be tried again. But if there were others that were involved in the kidnapping and murder that hadn't been indicted and charged and tried, they could still be. So Milan and Bryant were very careful in telling their story to William Bradford Huey, the reporter. Uh, they were very careful not to implicate anybody else in this crime. And so that story, because... It, clear, it was clear when you read the story that it came from them. I mean, he quotes, uh, the reporter quotes uh, Milam mainly throughout the piece, although he he wouldn't say that he actually talked to them. He wanted to protect uh, himself and them, but at the same time, he writes this article with all these uh, direct quotes from Milam. And it's because basically people read that article and got what they believed was a confession that kind of ended any attempts to really look for anybody else it kind of became the the position that people echoed over the years and it kind of closed the case in the minds of people saying okay now we know what happened even those talked about in the news uh, at the time that there were other men involved one of the witnesses at the trial willie reed talked about how he saw four men in a truck with Emmett Till on the back of the truck being held down by uh, some other black men. So there were several people involved. And any attempt to really find out who they were or to even still believe Willie Reed just kind of 
cooled off after that story appeared. And that was the narrative that people lived with for decades after that. It's the one that was told over and over and over again. So the fact that there were other people involved who never saw the inside of a courtroom uh, and the fact that people didn't know that and just the William Bradford Huey story just kept living and thriving and people echoed that and it was the narrative that Eyes on the Prize even took um, that tried to get to, you know, it was a history of the civil rights movement, but it, it, you came away from watching that believing that Milam and Bryant acted alone. Some people have argued that the dubious ethics of William Bradford Huey in paying money to murderers to get them to tell even a portion of the truth of what happened was somehow justified. That the world benefited and changed from learning from Roy Bryant's own lips about how he helped kill Emmett Till. We wondered what Devery thought of that argument. When I first learned about Emmett Till on the Eyes on the Prize video, there were a few things that angered me. One was that the men got away with murder. Another, how they, uh, after the trial, they were kissing their wives and so happy about being acquitted. I remember I was angered about that. And then I was angered that they sold their story and got paid for it and profited off this murder. And so I was angry then about that and always was or always have been since. It really bothers me, and it bothers me that a journalist would would pay them that or would contribute to their profiting off of this case. And it's always bothered me when people do that. Um, I've always worried that someone's going to be acquitted and then that you know is guilty, and they'll write a book about it, get this huge advance and that type of thing. That thing always bothers me. And had we have gotten the truth out of it, I suppose... I would have at some level thought, well, we wouldn't have known this otherwise, and we needed to know what really happened. But because he told a false story as well, that became the standard narrative that just sent everybody in the wrong direction for so long, we didn't even get that out of it. And so I I don't feel good about it at all. That, that was just another injustice out of this whole thing added to all the others. And it was something that Emma Till's mother had to had to live through, see all of that, experience that. And for her, it was extra tragic. Not just the men profited off the story, but the story they told made her son look so bad. And that was the one that, you know, sold, I don't know what the circulation was of Look magazine back then, but I know it, it sold more. They had to print extra copies. And so it, uh, everybody was talking about it. She had to live with people getting a false narrative of her son and his killing, uh, a story full of lies that they made money off of. So it was very tragic. The, the tragedies and the injustice just never seems to end. <laughs> we often hear talk about the other men who were involved in the death of Emmett Till, but we don't seem to hear their names that much. Let's change that. Let's name the others who helped murder this 14-year-old. And the other men who were involved, uh, Leslie Milam, who was a, another brother, he managed this plantation in Drew, Mississippi, where the shed was. He was present, and he confessed on his deathbed in 1974 to his minister that he was indeed involved in the murder of Emmett Till. So he lived 19 years after the trial of his brothers and never had to face anything uh, 
about that. Melvin Campbell, who was a brother-in-law, he was there, as was Elmer Kimball, another white man. There were some other men involved, other white men, uh, who the FBI learned that there was some involvement, but just don't know for sure uh, what it was, and so they don't really come up much. But there were some, the black men on the back of the truck were field hands who worked for J.W. Milam or knew him, and their involvement was mainly to clean up the mess or hold Emmett Till down. And they would have been afraid to go against Milam on that because he probably would have killed them uh, if they were to refuse, especially if they knew firsthand about the killing. You know, some of them knew because they were recruited to clean up and, and wash blood out of the truck. That's probably what one man whose name was Levi Collins, his nickname was Too Tight Collins, uh, he was recruited for that purpose. Others such as Henry Lee Loggins, uh, Willie Hubbard, he, his name surfaces early, later on during the FBI investigation, Johnny B. Washington and Otha Johnson, two other field hands, their names uh, appear and, and family members, they were dead by 2004 and five. But family members say that they had told them that they were involved. Henry Lee Loggins gave the name of Otha Johnson during an early interview as well. And the FBI learned that same name through others. So we don't know exactly who all was present at the shed. Willie Reed saw three uh, black men with him at Till on the back of the truck. But there are, I think, five uh, names of black men, five or six, that come up. And so we don't know for sure which ones were there, but we can be pretty sure that Henry Lee Loggins, probably Johnny B. Washington, and Willie Hubbard were probably the ones that were involved uh, at the shed and that Levi Collins um, and, you know, maybe one of these other ones helped clean up the mess afterwards. But we know they were involved uh, at some level. And uh, all of these names, uh, and they, you know, maybe people would have wanted to convict them too because they, you know, didn't, uh, you know, they were participating. But I think uh, it could be proven or at least, you know, you can make a case that they weren't there voluntarily. But the white men would have been there voluntarily. So these other men like Melvin Campbell and Elmer Kimball and Leslie Milam, they died never having to pay their part in this as well, just like Milo and Bryant didn't. Over the years, there have been renewed attempts to find justice in this case. In May 2004, the Justice Department announced that they were reopening the case because through some documentaries uh, and the research that, uh, put into that, and also uh, an activist named Alvin Sykes out of Kansas City knew how to look into cold cases and had some success when justice had alluded to someone at the state level, he was able to finagle a way to get the federal government involved. Because if you were acquitted at the state level, if, if other charges could be brought at the federal level, then you could still be tried again. And he knew how to do that as well. And so between all of this, uh, the Justice Department opened the case in May of 2004 because at the time there were other people living. Uh, Carolyn Bryant, who was the wife of the of Roy Bryant and the woman at the store when who had the encounter with Emmett Till, she's still living. 
and you know was then and uh that's what she was the focus then and she's still alive at uh, turning 88 uh, in the next day or two and during the course of the investigation which went from 2004 to 2005 they were able to find the, the trial transcript which had been missing for decades they found the murder weapon the gun that was used to kill emmett and they uh exhumed his body because if this went to trial again they wanted to be able to already answer the defense if because they would have used that same argument well how do we really know that this is Emmett Till's body so in this day and age of course they do DNA testing uh, his cousin Simeon Wright provided uh, DNA Wheeler Parker isn't blood related and so uh, he would have been the logical choice I suppose but uh, he's not blood-related to Emmett Till, and so Simeon Wright is. And so they used his DNA, proved the body through DNA to be Emmett Till's. And they did other examinations. They did x-rays, discovered he had more broken bones than they realized. The focus in 55 was on his face and how his skull became detached from the rest of his you know, part, parts of his skull became detached and that led the sheriff to think that maybe an axe had been involved and they hit him with an axe uh, some of that that could have been the case the cotton gin fan that was wrapped around his neck to weigh him down on the river that was quite heavy and so that could have landed on him and caused some damage we don't really know but all the focus in 55 was on his head well now they were able to see that he had broken bones in his arms and his legs um, they were able to prove that he did die of a gunshot wound, even though the sheriff said that initially in, in 1955, he changed uh, his mind and said, we don't know how he died. Uh, but they found the bullet fragments in his head in, in 1950, or in 2004, 2005, and were able to prove that it was him and how he died and the extent of his injuries. And they buried him in a new casket and... The original one has been restored now and is in the Smithsonian, uh, where you can still file past that casket all these years later. There was an attempt at that time to file charges against someone in this case. And so uh, the investigation uh, after the uh, FBI wrapped it up, they turned everything over to the state in uh, 2005 or 2006. And the DA there, Joyce Childs, then uh, looked, spent some time, considerable amount of time, looking over everything. She called a grand jury in February of 2007 to hear evidence against Carolyn Bryant. And she was wanting, she was hoping the grand jury would uh, indict her on manslaughter. Now, the manslaughter charge, something like that, and the statute, and I've read this statute, and I talk about it in my book book too it basically says that uh you don't have to be present for a murder uh but if you aided the killers and you know by pointing out or showing who the person was or leading them to him or whatever or him or her knowing they had some evil intent that they would harm him and if you aid them in that way then that means manslaughter. You could be uh, charged with manslaughter. There were two other incidents on the day of Emma Till's kidnapping where there were two other young men uh, 
that Roy Bryant confronted because he knew at this point, he didn't learn until Saturday really that about what had happened because he'd been out of town. The incident at the store happened on a Wednesday. Uh, he came back to town and I think early Friday morning or Saturday morning or something, but he learned about it from someone else, not from his wife. And so he confronted her and said, did this happen or what happened? And she told him a little boy and her teenage boy perhaps and his mother came into the store Roy thought that this kid was might have been Emmett, and he confronted him. And Carolyn intervened and said, no, no, that's not the right one. We know that story happened because Carolyn remembered it. The kid involved remembered it. And in my research, I found a interview with Moses Wright's wife where she talked about that in 1955, that a kid came in the store and that he wouldn't say yes, sir, to and no, sir, to Roy, and he got really upset with him. And, and that's what Carolyn remembered as well, that he wouldn't say he got upset that the mother didn't teach him to say yes, sir, and no, sir. But in the in in confronting him about that and getting yelling at him about that, he asked him if he was the one who had, you know, come in the store on that Wednesday, and he didn't even know what Roy was talking about because he wasn't the right one. And Carolyn told him that. Then later that night, uh, there's another story of a man uh, named Willie Hemphill, uh, who said told the FBI in 2005 that uh, he was walking down the street and Roy Bryant, Carolyn Bryant, and J.W. Milam stopped uh, in a truck, stopped him and asked if he was the right one. And he, he said, no, I think, but they didn't believe him, so they threw him on the back of the truck. And then Carolyn Bryant intervened again and said, no, he's not the one. And so they threw him off of the truck, and when they threw him off, he broke his front teeth. There's no other story to corroborate this from him. We just have his late account of that. But it was consistent with at least, you know, them looking for Emmett that day. So the FBI believed him. I think had no reason not to believe him. And then, of course, there was the incident with Emmett Till when she, Moses Wright said he heard her say, yes, it's the right one, or at least heard a voice say that. Um, and so that, if she was in the truck and identified him at that point, or if she wasn't in the truck and she identified him at the store, or or said at the store, like she claimed, that he's not the right one. <sighs> There's, If she was in the truck, at least, uh, that's what they were hoping to prove, I think, because if she said he was the right one, then, and she knew that Roy and J.W. Milam had evil intent and were going to harm him in some way, then that would make her an accomplice. But the uh, grand jury in 2007, it was racially mixed, and they unanimously said that there just wasn't the evidence there. They felt that they had been, some of them even accused the DA of using them just to put on a show to appease people. Uh, even the DA, after they uh, returned a no true bill and didn't indict her, they, she even said, you know, that's, they issued the right decision. She even agreed with it. I, she felt pressured to form this grand jury, I think, and did it. Uh, but also believe that the evidence wasn't there. If it went to trial, the prosecution would have had a hard time proving she was in the truck because everybody who could attest to that it was dead by that point. And so, and her story was consistent uh, that she told Roy he wasn't the right one at the store. She said that in 55 and she told the FBI that and her memoir now is, says that as well. She could very well be lying, but that's the only version where she's consistent with. So it would be very hard to, uh, at this point to 
charge her and convict her on manslaughter. But went to trial, a defense would say if she was there, her husband, who she later divorced for being abusive and a drunk, could have made her come. She may not have been there willingly. I mean, that would certainly be the defense's argument, even if they could prove she was there. And that would be very hard to do since no one is alive to corroborate that. So that's what the defense, that's what the 2004 investigation was trying to get at. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. To Devery, the fact that no charges ended up being filed against Carolyn at that time does not mean that the 2004 effort was a complete failure. Uh, We learned so much during the course of that investigation that the investigation was really an important thing to happen. We, we gained so much knowledge as a result of that stuff we still wouldn't know. And so as a truth mission, it succeeded uh, in seeking justice. They couldn't do it. We asked Devery what we should think about Carolyn and her role in this case. You know, there are plenty of reasons to be upset with Carolyn Bryant I, I personally don't believe she wanted Emmett kidnapped and or murdered. I, I don't believe she wanted that. But she was caught up in the whole thing, and she did want her husband to be acquitted. She's clear about that in the um, in her memoir. She's clear that she wanted him to be acquitted because she didn't want her to raise her kids alone. She wanted her kids to be raised with a father, even though that father was a murderer, and she knew he was. So I have a hard time with that. She said she learned the day of the after the murder when Roy didn't come home that night when she called a family member that uh, one of the other brothers, I think it was Roy's twin brother, told her what happened, but that you know it was Melvin Campbell who pulled the trigger. And Carolyn told that to the FBI as well. So she was told this. I don't think that's true because. If 
Melvin Campbell, the brother-in-law, pulled the trigger, I don't. I think Milam would have thrown him under the bus and wouldn't have knowingly gone on trial for murder for a crime he didn't commit, at least directly. He was. He would have been involved with beating and kidnapping and harming him. But if they, if if he believed or if Melvin Campbell had pulled the trigger, Milam would have, I think, thrown him under the bus quickly. I, so I don't really think Melvin Campbell pulled the trigger, but he was one of the men involved. So and Carolyn knew, and she talks in her memoir, that her husband and J.W. Milam and other men were involved in this. And she, she mentions Melvin Campbell. I think to the FBI, she mentions Elmer Kimball. And, uh, you know, Leslie Milam, she would have known about that too, the one who confessed on his deathbed. So she knew about this and never went to the police, never even anonymously or anything tried to uh, get these other men to pay a price. And in her memoir, she talks about how she always felt bad for Mamie Till and cried for her and all of that, but which may be true. I, I, I think at some level she, she did feel a lot of pain for her, but not enough to where she wanted to help her see justice. She could have turned these other men in. She could have done it after she divorced Roy. Uh, Leslie Milan was dead by then, but Melvin Campbell and Elmer Kimball were still alive. She could have gone to the police and said, I know firsthand that these other men were involved. So she could have given Mamie Till some peace by helping her find justice through, uh, the, you know, getting some convictions for the men who are still alive. So she talks about being a victim in her memoir, but she created her the bed that she had to lie in all these years. You know, she chose not to go public, and so she she left a lot of stuff, kept a lot of stuff to herself, and in not going public and not talking, and not turning these other men in, and just and not talking to reporters or anybody, she just created a scenario where she kind of had to hide for a lot of years. Had she had been up front early on, even before the cases reopened, until the cases reopened, nobody was really looking for her. She acts like she had been. Um, hounded ever since the end of the trial, but she really wasn't because there were no newspaper articles written. Uh, she claims many times that every year on the anniversary, the press would hound her and they came to Roy's funeral uh, looking for her, I think she said, but no articles appeared. So if these press were working on stuff, they never published it. And so she really wasn't bothered much if at all, until after 2004, when 60 Minutes publicized her face, how she looks now, gave her name, and showed her home. That, because she was in the phone book. I found her in the phone book prior to 2004. So she really wasn't hounded until after 2004. So she had years where she could have come forward and told her side of the story, turned these men in. People wouldn't have been after her the way they are now. So, if she's a victim, it's a situation she created for herself. It wasn't just, it just didn't happen, you know, just as a result of her marriage to Roy. So there are a lot of reasons to be upset with her. She could have made a big difference and saw that people uh, were uh, brought to justice and she would have been the one voice that could have done that and she chose not to. That brings us back to where we started the episode. Recently, in the basement of a courthouse, a group of interested civilians discovered an unissued arrest warrant in the Emmett Till case. 
It named Carolyn Bryant, who is still alive. Here's Jerry Mitchell. Well, they found the original arrest warrant in the case. Uh, you know, from what I understand from legal experts, it could still be served. Now, uh, there might be some questions raised about it, given the age of the of the arrest warrant. Um, so presumably it might need a judge to sign off on it. So that would be the other part of that that might be involved in that. But if you are going to do that, the other aspect of that is, you know, it's all well and fine to arrest someone. You've got to have a case as well. So um, the prosecution would, if, if they decided they wanted to take that on, obviously would have to have a, a case. You wouldn't just arrest someone. You would, your, your plan would be to arrest and then obviously indict and, and go to trial. All those things would have to be in play. And my understanding is that the witnesses who could place her in the truck that night are all deceased. They are. The um, the closest you can get to that would be Mose Wright's testimony um, in 1955. Now, what the way you would have to get it in, you'd have to get, you'd have to have it, in order to even try her, you would have to have a hearing and there's a certain piece of evidence you would have to rule on before you could ever get the trial. I mean, uh, one would be the transcript. If you can get Mose Wright's testimony and Mose Wright's testimony didn't identify her, but what it said was that uh, as they were taking Emmett Till out to the car, Mose Wright said he heard a voice lighter than a man's voice say, that's the one. So if you interpret that as essentially being Carolyn Bryant, that's that's as close to you know kind of an identification as you have. Given that you know you, that's even from back then, I think that's as close as you have. Um, there are some additional witnesses who who have died that, that would shed more light on that. Uh, and then the other piece would obviously be her uh, what she had said herself to the defense lawyer originally which contradicts what she testified to. Over the years, of course, Carolyn has told a variety of stories, not just about what happened at the store, but also about the events of the night of Emmett Till's brutal murder. Now she has added yet another version in her unpublished memoir. Here's Jerry. She, in her original statement to the defense lawyer, her statement was uh, that her husband and others had brought Emmett Till to her. She denied it was them. And then their statement to authorities at the time was, oh, we released him. We found out he wasn't the one and we just released him unharmed. Uh, obviously, that's a lie. Um, and so what she then told the FBI later um, was, Oh, yeah, they did bring him to him, but I said it wasn't him. And then what she said in her memoir was that Emmett Till identified himself. That he, she was the one frightened and he was the one kind of fearless. What she said in her original statement to the defense lawyer was that Emmett Till was afraid, but unharmed. So... Uh, you know, the question is, 
Uh, and then in the memoir, she kind of doubles down on, you know, like I said, it says that Phil identified himself. And it's this whole long sequence of how she, you know, denied it was him, denied it was him, denied it was him. And then, and then after identified, uh, Till supposedly identified himself and she repeatedly said, Oh no, don't, don't hurt him. Don't hurt him. Don't hurt him. And, um, taken back and that she said that her husband agreed to that at some point. So that was her statement in her, uh, in her memoir. So, I mean, that's something she's never said before. She didn't tell the FBI that when they interviewed her. Um, so that's new. Um, her saying, yeah, her saying until identify himself, is something she's never said before. Um, and it just she just kind of doubles down on everything. She doubles down on what happens at the store. She actually makes it far worse than even what she testified to. How did she describe uh, it? In, how, what did she say happened in the store in her memoir? Oh, just it's just like far worse. And how scared she was, and she was fumbling to try to find the gun under the counter, and it wasn't there, and and, and uh, so she went out to the car and was able to find the retriever from the car, and then Emmett and uh, his cousins took off. I mean, just different little things. Like she says, talked about what a fancy car they were in. Well, you know, we didn't see cars like that around, you know, how fancy it was, and it was like, I mean, this guy was a sharecropper. I mean, it was, he didn't have a fancy car, like a 46 Ford. I mean, by that point, it was already nine years old. It was not a fancy car at all. So just a lot of things like that that are, uh, you know, um, inconsistent for sure and, and make you wonder, uh, is she, um, what, what what's happening here? Why is she even exaggerating from what she had even said at trial. And uh, and obviously her original statement wasn't anything close to that. I mean, some people were gonna uh, speculate that perhaps she's trying to shift the blame, you know, from herself, like whether she feels guilty or whatever the situation is, that she's trying to shift the blame. She mentions, uh, actually blames Juanita Milam. That was the, uh, the wife of J.W. Milam, one of the other killers, and says that she must have been the one that went out and identified Till's house, you know, at Mose Wright's house, um, because it wasn't her, and she stayed home. And um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. She does not, the thing that's abundantly clear is she did not recant. It's a, a, there's there been some claims that she recanted what she said and admitted she lied when she testified. Well, there's just nothing in the memoir or the interviews that I have copies of that um, suggest anything remotely close to that. Jerry has recently spoken with an FBI agent who has investigated the case. Well, the the FBI agent who investigated the case for the FBI more recently, uh, after he read the memoir, he concluded that it was new evidence and needed to be heard by uh, a new grand jury. 
there was a grand jury that met in 2007 and declined to indict her. Uh, the charge that was considered was manslaughter. The idea being um, not necessarily traditionally like you think of manslaughter, but it would be like uh, if you know someone is going to be put in uh, that what you say or do is going to put somebody in harm's way, then um, you, you're kind of an accessory before the fact. That's the way they view it under the law the court cases that they've had that they had back at the time. So that would be the, the legal theory that would be uh, the grand jury would, would look at. And obviously they declined to indict in 2007, but they didn't have these notes of her original statement to the defense lawyer, nor did they have the memoir. So there's now new evidence that that grand jury never heard. But does the discovery of this warrant really represent something new which could lead to Carolyn's arrest? Here's Devery. Now, as far as the warrant goes, the warrant itself, I mean, I've been hearing that it's, uh, it doesn't expire. And so if it was never served, it's still good. But the thing is, there had been the, the investigation in 2004 and five, and the FBI investigated again from 2017 to it just officially closed last year, I think, and I don't think they were doing much with it after 2019, but uh, there was another investigation, and they had her memoir all this time. They knew that there had been a warrant. They didn't have to wait for an old warrant to show up before they could issue a new one. If they had the evidence they wanted, they would have just issued another warrant for her arrest. They didn't have to hope an old one, 67 years old, would show up. And so between the two FBI investigations, they never did anything. Um, the warrant itself doesn't provide new evidence. It just it's now a document that they had that they never had, which is nice to have all the stuff now safely stored, not buried. But it uh, it doesn't give them. It alone isn't evidence of anything, um, and they, they 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 didn't need that if they had the evidence they needed to be able to prosecute her. And here's the thing. We know a few things now that we didn't know when they tried to prosecute her in 2007. This statement that she gave to her attorney on September 2nd, 1955, where she gave a very mild account of what happened in the store, we didn't have that statement then. It's in the William Bradford Huey papers, but that portion of his papers was donated later than the rest of his stuff. Maybe it happened after his widow uh, died a few years ago. And that was stuff he had held back, apparently. And there's more than just that statement. There's a ton of good stuff in the papers that were just donated. There are statements from other people that are just as important as Carolyn Bryant. But they didn't have that statement in 2004. But all that statement does is tell us that she lied on the witness stand uh, because you can compare the testimony there and the, and, the, and the words of the statement. A lot of people are saying, well, she lied. She told these lies about what happened to, him, to her, and those lies got her husband riled up, and so he, they went, went and kidnapped Emmett Till and killed him. So people will say, uh, and I've been seeing this a lot, that she lied, he died. But it's clear that the lie was concocted after Emmett's death for the purpose of uh, telling it to the jury so that they would be more sympathetic and it was just a way to assure a conviction for her husband the jury didn't hear the testimony directly but they 
more than likely heard about it or had read about it or maybe even heard about it in, during recess at the trial because Sidney Carlton, the defense, one of the defense attorneys, was very loudly saying that when Carolyn gets on the stand, she's going to tell the story that Emmett Mulder and uh, tussled with her and all the stuff. He even told a version that was even more dramatic than the one she told on the witness stand. And he was telling this in the courtroom during recess for the jury to hear. So he was, they had this uh, agenda and this plan, this scheme to have her lie on the witness stand, but it wasn't the lie that, that didn't lead to Emma's death. What led to Emma's death was the men were upset about this, whatever this talk was that Emmett did. It had, had they been looking for a, uh, would-be rapist, the way she made it sound on the witness stand, they would have gone to Mose Wright's home wanting somebody who did something like that. They wouldn't have been just talking about the boy who did the talk. Um, they clearly, there's nothing set off uh, a white Southern man more than sexual impropriety between a white man and a, or a black man and a white woman. Even if it was consensual, it was always rape in their eyes. And that set them off like more than anything else. That was always the rumor. Even when they would lynch someone who was accused of something else, they always found a way to turn it into a sex crime. And they wouldn't have just come to Mose Wright's home wanting the boy who'd done the talk if they were if they thought Emmett had tried to, to rape her. So that lie was concocted after his death. It, it's, it's, there's no evidence to the contrary. And so... Um, so if they would have, the only thing they could really get her on for lying is just perjury. Uh, and that had, statute limitations had been up. I think that was, I don't know, two years or five years for lying uh, under oath. So that's the only thing we've learned about since they tried to form the grant, you know, tried to get her on manslaughter in 2004. Uh, so to get her on that again, there's nothing new that we didn't know in 2007 and uh, to try her, to indict her on that same evidence, I think they don't want to go there because it would just be, feel like that they would give the impression to the public that it's just a witch hunt and it could set race relations back quite a ways. My feeling is that it's never too late to prosecute someone who's guilty of a, of a crime like kidnapping or murder. I don't care how old they are. I don't care what physical shape they're in. But if you do prosecute them and bring them uh, into a courtroom, you need to have a slam duck, dunk, open and shut case uh, because you'll not only embarrass, a prosecutor would not only embarrass themselves, they could jeopardize future cold cases or, you know, prosecutors even having the heart to go after those where there is even stronger evidence that are cases that aren't as old where there are people still living. I think it would set that stuff, you know, back years. So you have to have, you can't just haul someone in and put on a show. And if they get acquitted, oh, that would just be the worst thing. You would have to have, you would have to have proof that she was there that night. You'd have to have more than just hearsay and they just don't have it. And so I think that's why the DA is just not touching it because it could cause, he really couldn't win. I don't see how he could win at this stage. So it does not seem terribly likely that Carolyn Bryant will be arrested and charged. The lack of justice for Emmett Till will continue. 
if there's any consolation for nobody ever being convicted of Emmett Till's murder, it is that the injustice that has prevailed gives it a certain power that angers and stirs people up. I'd rather have, have had justice, but if we don't have that, I'd rather have it be used to stir people up. Just like in 1957, it was used uh, during the congressional debate to help get the Civil Rights Act of 1957 passed. So too has it been used to uh, uh, create the Emmett Till Unsolved Civil Rights Act uh, that you know gives money to cold civil rights cases. And it, it was renewed uh, without any uh, sunset provision in it. And so that's the power of the Till case, but it's always doing good for other cases uh, so that certain things don't happen anymore or that we can uh, get to the bottom of other cases. But justice itself has always eluded Emmett, but he's, he didn't die in vain uh, because of all this other stuff that... Uh, occurs because of the power of this case that's never really died down it's it's just as powerful today as it was when people walked by that casket or his photo of his face has the same effect on people today as it did then almost without any cooling off you know of the you know it doesn't matter that it happened almost 70 years ago when people learn about it today they're just as angry and outraged as they were then and very few cases have the power where just time, you know, will often just diminish uh, that anger because it's so long ago you learn about it. It's like, well, that was a long time ago. Yeah, it was sad, but it, it, this case doesn't do that. This case has just maintained that. And it's part of it is because of the injustice that will always be attached to it. During the course of his research, Devery got to know Emmett's mother, Mamie Till. For the six years I I knew her, she was always a delight to talk to over the phone. And my first time talking to her was when I recorded our conversation because it was for a class project. And it's the only one I have on tape. And I'll, I remember one of the questions that I asked her was how she felt about the killers. After all this time, I asked her if she'd ever heard from them or their family and she said there had never been any direct contact at all uh you know from her family from their family or uh from them of course not but from the family none of the grandkids that might have wanted to make amends or try to create some healing there was nothing like that and then i asked her so how do you feel about these guys now and she said mercifully she's very religious and so she said Mercifully, the Lord uh, just took them from my heart and my mind. I don't feel love. I don't feel hate. I don't feel anything. But she said, I went on to become a benefactor to society because she became a school teacher and she formed the Emmett Till Foundation and she formed the uh, performing group called the Emmett Till Players that went around and recited Martin Luther King's speeches at different schools and events and kids that she said were at risk that uh, went on to become preachers and doctors and lawyers and very successful. She felt she saved a lot of kids from the streets by instilling them these value in them these values when they were young. And, and so her goal was that Emmett not die in vain. And even though there was never justice, 
and a lot of people, and like me, when I saw that Eyes on the Prize video in 1994, and I saw that these guys got away with so much and made money, my first thoughts were, whatever happened to them? Did they ever pay a price for this? What happened to Emmett's mother? Um, is she still alive? Is she, did she just, was she so depressed? She just died in obscurity and loneliness. And I had to know all of this stuff. And so when I talked to her, I, I, I got so many answers and I wanted to, uh, when she told me that she, um, that Emmett, you know, she, even despite never getting justice, Emmett didn't die in vain because through his death, she was able to go on and help so many other kids. For me, that was a big sigh of relief. I just felt this load lifted from me because I'd spent a couple of years between learning the case and talking to her for the first time where I just, I didn't really know what happened to her and I wanted to know. And I, I thought if she's alive, I just want to comfort her. Is she still hurting over this? And so to hear her just say that she went on and became a benefactor to society while they became scourges to society uh, because neither one of them really amounted to much uh, after that and Milam especially couldn't hold a job and uh, just his wife had to work because he couldn't really hold a job and uh, Roy Bryant went on to become a welder but the welding caused him to go uh, become legally blind he could still see a little bit he drove his truck to the end but he was legally blind and selling up until his death, uh, after his second store burned down and he didn't have any insurance, he was selling fireworks and fruit off the side of the road uh, for a living. And then they both died very painful deaths from cancer. J.W. Milam's, one of his family members told me that his death was very, very slow and painful, uh, the cancer, type of cancer he had. And that, I'm sure, brings a lot of satisfaction to a lot of people, but her point was that you know, our lives went in separate directions and I made a difference and they didn't. And um, that stayed with her, comforting to her, but it was comforting to me because I knew that um, Emma's death didn't end her life. It really began it in a, just in a different direction. We would like to thank Devery Anderson and Jerry Mitchell for taking the time to talk with us. We will include links to Devery's terrific book and Jerry Mitchell's recent article in our show notes. We also relied on coverage in the New York Amsterdam News and the New York Times. To our surprise, we've gotten a number of requests from people saying they would like a way to help financially support our efforts with the show. So if you are interested, we are relaunching a Patreon page, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. Join us there for two live video question and answer sessions each month. You can ask us anything, suggest new cases for us to look at, or even offer ideas for new leads for us to follow. If Patreon is not your thing, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murdersheet. Thanks for the interest. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenlee, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet, 
and on Facebook at MSheet Podcast or by searching Murder Sheet. If you enjoy listening to the Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>